Hey, before we get to this episode of Income Investing, I want to quickly tell you about an online course that I came out with. It's called The Roadmap to Financial Freedom. To make a long story short, I talk about how investors and entrepreneurs can build enough passive income to replace their expenses and become financially independent. If you listen to my podcasts or read my articles, then you already know how thorough I try to be whenever I put out content. I try to give realistic, actionable information that can make a difference in your life. To learn more about the Roadmap to Financial Freedom, just go to alexisasadi.net slash podcast and scroll down to the very bottom of the page. There's going to be a link to a two-minute explainer video that you can watch. The course costs under $10, and I explain why it's so inexpensive in that video. Again, it's alexisasadi.net slash podcast. That's A-L-E-X-I-S-A-S-S-A-D-I dot net slash podcast. Hey, it's Alexis Asadi, and welcome to episode number 17 of Income Investing, a show that explores different investments that produce income and or dividends. If you can, please just take a quick moment to click the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on. Income Investing is available through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and also on Google Play. You'll get a notification whenever the latest episode comes out, which is each Wednesday morning, usually at around 10 in the morning Pacific Standard Time. So doing that will keep you in the loop, and it'll also help me spread the word. If this is your first time tuning in, thanks for hanging out with us. This podcast covers investments that can pay passive income, either monthly or quarterly. So we look at everything from income-producing stocks to real estate investment trusts to income and mortgage funds to peer-to-peer lending and everything in between. Now, we like these kinds of assets for several reasons. First, you can use the revenue that they produce to supplement or even replace your income. Second, many of them can also appreciate in value, thus providing the best of both worlds. You can get cash flow and capital gains. Third, there's virtually an unlimited selection of income investments, so you can diversify and take advantage of various economic circumstances. And fourth, many of them are cheap and easily accessible, so you can start investing with just a few hundred dollars. Right now, we're nearing the end of our mortgage lending segment. We've been looking at how banks and mortgage funds and private lenders can profit by lending money out and securing their loans with real estate. I know some of our listeners are lenders themselves, but really what I'm trying to do is to build a foundation for mortgage-based investments, like credit funds and mortgage funds. We're going to get into them soon, so I want to make sure that we all understand them from the ground up. Before we get into it all, let's pause for a moment to hear from our sponsor. This episode of Income Investing is sponsored by Pacific Income. Pacific Income provides financing to real estate investors and business owners in both the U.S. and Canada. We lend up to $250,000 to entrepreneurs who need capital to grow. To learn more about us and whether we'd be a good fit for your needs, please visit us online at packincome.com. That's P-A-C-income.com. All right, so like we always do, let's get to a quick question from one of our listeners. 
If you'd like some clarity on a subject, or if there's anything in particular that you'd like me to address, you can let me know at alexisasadi.net slash podcast. We carve this space out in the podcast for questions about any topic at all. It doesn't have to be relevant to our current discussion. So this week's question is from Jamal, who's in Atlanta. He was wondering what I meant in last week's episode when I said that banks often give loans at prime plus interest instead of at a fixed interest rate. He wanted to know exactly what I meant by the word prime. So Jamal, prime just means the interest rates that banks give to their best, lowest risk customers. It's usually given for safe residential mortgages. Also, law, dental, and medical students will often get loans at Prime because of their future earnings potential. So Prime essentially means the best interest rate. Now, each bank will set its own Prime rate. But remember, it's probably going to be higher than its borrowing rate, which is influenced or determined by central banks. So, for example, if the U.S. Fed raises the federal funds rate, then that's going to make it more expensive for American banks to borrow money and thus their prime rates are going to go up too. Banks therefore give loans at prime plus interest to lock in their profits. If it gets more expensive for them to get loans, they pass those costs on to their customers. Now, many moons ago in episode 12, we talked about the Great Recession of 2008 and the impact of subprime loans. There's a common misconception that that means loans were given with interest rates below prime. But what it actually means is that loans were given to subprime customers, so people who would likely have difficulty repaying their debts. They were also coined as ninjas, people with no income, no job, and no assets. So thanks for your question, Jamal. Okay, so as always, let's do a brief recap. If this is your first time listening to the Income Investing Podcast, you might want to start at episode number 10. That was our first take on mortgage lending. We noted that mortgages are legal instruments that secure a debt with property. They preclude a person or a business that owes money from selling that piece of real estate without first repaying their creditors. In the worst case scenario, a mortgage can allow a lender to foreclose on the property. The lender can then take possession of the asset and sell it in order to recoup its funds. When the property is sold, the mortgage loans are repaid in chronological order. If a bank has a first mortgage on it, and a private lender has a second mortgage, then the bank would be paid first. One of the focal points of episode 10 was that lenders have to be cognizant of whether the property is worth enough to repay the mortgages. For example, if it's valued at $200,000, but there's a $250,000 mortgage on it, then the creditor will only be able to retrieve a maximum of $200,000 she's going to have to collect on the remainder of the borrower's other assets, which can be hard to do. As such, it's important to lend at a healthy loan-to-value ratio, or LTV. In episode 11, we talked about how mortgage loans are investments. We established that they can be great income-producing assets because they can generate monthly revenue from interest payments. Lenders can also build in late penalties and origination fees. Further, the borrower will usually be required to reimburse the lender for its legal fees. So when the lender hires a lawyer to put it all together, the borrower should have to pay for that. Episode 12 was dedicated to some of the main risks of mortgage lending. We saw that there are definitely ways to lose money. One of the biggest problems is that loans can be hard to sell. 
We then spent the following two episodes on managing those risks. That led us to the debt market, a place where lenders can sell their loan agreements and thus gain liquidity. Through those discussions, we saw that loan contracts can fluctuate in price. We used the example of a mortgage fund called ABC Mortgage Fund, which sold $20 million worth of promissory notes for $21 million. And finally, we got to episode 16. There, we explored central banks like the US Federal Reserve and the Bank of Canada. We talked about how they influence the interest rates on everything from private loans to bonds to credit cards and auto loans by setting the rate at which commercial banks can borrow. In short, because most of the world's credit comes from regular banks, central banks have the power to heat up and cool down the economy by making it more expensive for commercial banks to borrow. Today, we're going to dive into private mortgage loans. We'll talk about who private lenders are and why they're important. Now, private mortgage lending is often incorrectly seen as loan sharking. For people who don't know much about it, they might think that it's all about targeting vulnerable borrowers who are desperate for cash. They need money so badly that they'll pay 10, 15, or 30% for a loan. Private lending is often sometimes called hard money lending. Even the name sounds a little bit sinister. It's often associated with a hairy, pot-belly, cigar-smoking man donning gold chains and a large pinky ring. Without question, this market exists. There are a lot of lenders whose entire business model revolves around capitalizing on other people's bad fortune. The economy dips, you lose your job, and you start missing mortgage payments. The next thing you know, the bank exercises the immediate repayment clause in your loan agreement and calls in the mortgage. It gives you 30 days to repay $300,000. One of your only options will be to borrow from a private lender who might see an opportunity to lend at an exorbitant rate. But if you don't do the deal, you could lose your home. Now, for every person who says that this type of lending is unethical, there's another who'll say that it's just part of living in a capitalist society. There's a demand for private financing, so somebody's stepping in to provide a supply. Nobody is forcing the borrower to take a private loan. And if their situation is so dire that they need this type of capital, then they are probably a high-risk borrower. The lender should be compensated by charging more interest. This is the same type of argument that's applied to payday loan companies. I'm not going to get into the weeds of the argument or give an opinion on either side. Neither I nor Pacific Income do deals like this, but I don't think that the preferences of me or my business partners are relevant to this episode. For now, I just want to acknowledge that private lending can involve preying on the vulnerable. However, this is just one sliver of the private financing market. It gets a lot of attention because it can lead to fiery ethical debates. But desperate people and businesses are not even close to being the only type of private borrower. For example, real estate developers especially are a common client for private lenders. To be clear, a private lender is basically any financing business that isn't a bank. It could be a mortgage company or a mortgage investment corporation a credit fund, a syndication of lenders, and yes, even a hairy, cigar-smoking fat guy with a big pile of cash. A private lender could be anything from a billion-dollar investment fund to a regular person who lends out $20,000. So what kind of role do private financiers play in the lending market? Well, as we saw from last week's episode, 
banks are the dominant lenders. They originate hundreds of billions of dollars of loans through residential and commercial mortgages, lines of credit, and credit cards. However, they generally cater to a specific type of borrower. First, they target low-risk people and companies. For that reason, in most cases, the cheapest loans will come from banks. Second, banks want lifelong customers. And third, they offer a lot of different products. A bank's business model is to get you to use one or more of their services, and then sell other banking products to you and your family. Lending is just one element of their enterprise. For instance, you might open a savings account with a new bank because their fees are lower than your current one. A few weeks later, you'll start getting letters in the mail about their credit card options. You'll hear from their insurance department and their mutual fund salespeople. One day, if you decide to buy a house, you'll get a mortgage loan from the bank. They'll try to get the business of your spouse and your children, and they'll repeat the process with them. As well, banks usually want to keep their customers in debt for decades. That's not meant to be a nefarious statement, but it's the truth. For example, your mortgage will be for 25 years. Your line of credit will be revolving. Your credit card bills will only require a minimum payment. There's no incentive given by the bank to pay it off early. Banks want you, your business, and your family to use as many of their products for as long as possible. And if any of you come with a low enough risk, then they'll consider lending to you. But banks have a very specific perception of risk. A lot of them are massive organizations with a heavily automated approval process. You go to the branch, you sit with a loan officer, answer their questions, and provide whatever documentation they need. You need this much in income, you need to have been employed for this amount of time, you need that much in assets, and your house has to be worth this much. If your situation doesn't fit exactly within the bank's parameters, then you'll get rejected for financing. They mostly lend to people and companies who fit within their box. Of course, many people don't fit in that box for a good reason. They might have poor credit, they're bankrupt, they have a lot of debt, they don't have a lot of assets, or they have a low income. There's not a lot of choice for them. If they want a loan, they're going to have to get it from a private lender. They're too risky for banks. However, a lot of people, namely business owners and real estate investors, are creditworthy, but don't meet bank requirements. For instance, a bank will generally require a company to produce two years of financial statements prepared by an accountant before considering a loan. The business could be highly profitable, but if it was launched 18 months ago, it might get rejected because it's too new. The bank will say, come back in six months. Further, banks are often reluctant to finance second mortgages. You could have a great property with a low LTV and be rejected simply because the bank wants to be in first position. Second mortgages are obviously riskier than first mortgages, but that doesn't mean that they're high risk. That's why just about every real estate developer on the planet will have at some point used private financing. Second mortgages are a big part of the property business, but banks typically don't get involved with them. Moreover, banks can take months to research and approve a loan, especially for commercial deals. This stems from a combination of risk aversion and their own internal bureaucracy. A lot of businesses don't have that kind of time to wait. It's not that they're desperate, but opportunities come and go quickly. 
As well, banks are often not forgiving of entrepreneurs' mistakes. A prior bankruptcy or a business failure can shut a person out of credit for a decade. It doesn't matter how well they've done since. One blemish will taint them for a long time. In fact, an applicant could have perfect credit, a high income, and own three rental properties. But a bank might turn him down for a mortgage to buy a fourth one because it thinks he has too much debt, obviously thanks to all those mortgages. This is the scenario that most real estate investors eventually find themselves in. They simply run out of credit, even though they might own millions of dollars of real estate. As such, private lenders can be a more suitable choice for businesses and entrepreneurs and real estate investors. This is exactly the industry that Pacific Income does business in. First, a private lender can work with applicants and try to understand their business. Small and mid-sized lenders especially can give human attention. They have more room to be creative. For instance, Pacific Income probably wouldn't care if a person is a million dollars in debt if he owns two million dollars of real estate. We would understand that all of that debt came from mortgages to buy properties. Second, private lenders often run a single business. They lend money for the short term. They want to lend to a borrower for a few months or a few years, earning income from both the interest and fees. The faster they get their money back, the faster they can lend it out to someone else, meaning the more often they can charge origination fees. The private lending model is money out, money in. Not money out for 25 years, bundled up with insurance products, credit cards, mutual funds, stock brokerages, and savings accounts. In fact, part of the reason that private lenders charge a higher rate than banks is because they have less time to earn interest. They might charge 12% interest and a 3% origination fee for a one-year term, so the effective rate is 15%. But that's all they make. A bank, on the other hand, might charge 4% a year for 25 years. By the time the loan is repaid, they've doubled their money. And during those 25 years, they've probably signed the borrower up for a credit card, an insurance policy, two bank accounts, and they manage half of their investment portfolio. Third, private lenders can often move quickly. Many will fund a loan in just a matter of days. That's an attractive feature to a real estate investor who might see a property on the market and wants to snatch it up before someone else does. So the key here is to realize that banks and private financing firms are selling different products. They're really not in competition. It's kind of like comparing a basketball and a tennis ball. They both bounce, they're both used in sports, but they serve different purposes. Now, real estate developers are an especially common client for private lenders. Anyone from the guy renovating a house to flip it to a billion-dollar development firm might prefer private money over bank financing. In other cases, they'll use private money to secure bank financing. Consider this example. Sarah runs a real estate development firm in the outskirts of Seattle, Washington. Her company has 30 employees and has been in business for 20 years. Right now, it's building 10 townhouses in an area that's quickly growing in population. She bought the land for $4 million, a million dollars in cash, and a $3 million mortgage from the bank. Sarah expects that once the townhouses are built, she can then sell them for a total of $6 million. If the project is successful, 
her company would earn a $2 million profit. Unfortunately, her staff underestimated the cost of construction by about half a million dollars. Commodity prices rose, and there were some labor overruns. Sarah is frustrated, but not panicked. This happens all the time in real estate. She knows that she pretty much has two choices. Either make do with what she has, but sacrifice the quality of the homes. Or raise another $500,000 to complete the development. The first option is really a non-starter. It would be awful for Sarah's brand. She built her entire business on the premise of delivering beautiful, top-notch housing. That's what sets her apart from the competition. As well, she probably wouldn't be able to sell the properties for as much. If she dropped the quality, the development would likely sell for $5.3 million, so $700,000 less than planned. The company would only make a $1.3 million profit instead of $2 million. Therefore, Sarah approaches the bank for an extra half million dollars. However, it's unwilling to lend any more to the project. As an internal policy, the bank won't go beyond a 75% LTV on commercial loans. It even refuses after Sarah offers her own personal real estate as extra collateral, which would balance out the LTV. Sarah is perplexed. If the quality of the townhouses has to suffer because she can't get more cash, and then she has to sell them for a lower price, well then, doesn't that threaten the bank's loan? Doesn't the bank have a vested interest in selling these properties for as much money as possible to ensure that its mortgage can be repaid? But the bank doesn't see it that way. It has reached its maximum LTV, and its capital is nice and secure. It isn't interested in mortgaging Sarah's house because the deal would start getting messy. It's just not interested in the proposition. In the worst case, if it has to foreclose, the bank believes that there's still enough equity to recoup its capital. It's fine with the way things are. As such, Sarah approaches a mortgage broker who connects her with a mortgage fund. The fund agrees to lend the $500,000 for one year at 12% interest, secured by a second mortgage on all of the townhouses, plus a second mortgage on Sarah's personal residence. For Sarah and her company, this makes a lot of sense. Without the second mortgage, she could only net $1.3 million after selling the townhouses. But with it, she can boost the value by $700,000. She'd have to pay half a million back to the private lender, plus $60,000 in interest, but she'd still net $1.44 million. Of course, entrepreneurs don't only look for private financing when something goes wrong, which it often does in real estate because there are so many moving parts. Private loans are common for all sorts of ventures, especially construction projects. Let's look at a second example. Jason is a real estate developer who's also interested in capitalizing on the growth that's occurring in the outskirts of Seattle. But unlike Sarah, he builds commercial properties like strip malls and small shopping centers. Jason has identified a parcel of land that's listed for sale. It's about a five-minute drive from Sarah's townhouses. Right now, it's just a big patch of grass. But he believes that the local residents would shop there if it could be developed into a commercial center. His objective is to buy the land, build on it, and lease the space to various businesses. The main or the anchor tenant would be a large grocery store like a Safeway or a Trader Joe's. Now, the land costs $15 million to buy. 
Jason expects that it would take about 18 months to build on it, plus, say, another six months to occupy it with tenants. He expects the cost of construction to be about $2 million. So phase number one would be to buy the land. Phase two would be to develop it. Phase three would be to find tenants. And the last phase, phase four, would be to rent it out to them for the long term. As such, Jason structures the deal to include four types of capital. Equity financing, bank financing, mezzanine financing, and takeout financing. Each financier has its own objectives, tolerance for risk, and position in the project. So here's how it all comes together. In phase number one, Jason and his investors buy the land for $15 million. $5 million came from their own cash, which is also called equity. $10 million came from a bank mortgage loan. As such, the bank loaned at an LTV of 67%. It's a 25-year loan with an annual interest rate of 5%. Now that Jason has the land, he needs to begin phase two. He secures a $2 million, 24-month construction loan from a private lender. He plans to use this short-term financing to build the shopping center. The private lender secures the loan with a second mortgage behind the banks. Its LTV is 80%. Again, it's a $15 million property, there's a $10 million first mortgage, and there's now a $2 million second mortgage. So 80% of the value of the real estate is encumbered by debt. Construction is often the riskiest part of a real estate deal. Like we saw with Sarah, there can be cost overruns. There can also be delays and mistimings. In Jason's experience, 18 months to build and 6 months to stabilize is reasonable, but you can never be sure. As such, the private loan has an interest rate of 9% per year to account for the risk. Now, remember that Jason's plan is to rent the real estate to commercial tenants. The objective is to create long-term cash flow from rent, rather than to sell the properties after they're constructed. He and his investors want income, not an immediate capital gain. But if he's not going to sell the properties, then how is Jason going to repay the construction loan in two years? The first 18 months will be spent building, so there won't be any tenants to pay rent and produce revenue for the project. And there's no way that he could generate $2 million in profit during the six-month stabilization period. That's usually when rent prices are the lowest. Well, Jason's going to do what's common in commercial real estate. Once the property is developed and occupied with tenants, he's going to get a loan from a third lender, another bank, and use it to repay the current second mortgage. The bank is one of the few local ones that entertain mortgages that are not in first position. But at this stage, the deal will also be far less risky because the property will be occupied with rent-paying tenants. As such, the third lender, the bank, will probably give a 25-year loan at 6 or 7% interest. So Jason will also save 2% a year in interest payments. The private lender will be paid out, and the third lender now has the second mortgage. So let's look at the capital structure of the deal again. It's a $15 million property with a $10 million 25-year bank mortgage in the first position. The private lender comes in for two years during the construction phase. This is called mezzanine or bridge financing because the money is being used to cover a short-term phase in the project, the construction period. It's there to bridge a gap. Once that phase is over, 
the bridge financing is paid off with a second long-term loan from another bank. This loan is called takeout financing because it's taking out another lender from the deal. Jason picked his lenders based on his needs. He used bank money to finance the project over the long term. He used private money just to finance the construction. Of course, it would have been easier if the first bank just gave him one big loan to fund the entire operation. But that's often not how things work, especially in real estate development. It will frequently require some combination of financing because the bank doesn't want to take on all of the risk. Bridge or mezzanine loans are one of the most common types of private lending. They often comprise a huge portion of the holdings of mortgage funds and mortgage investment corporations and MREITs and mortgage syndications. They play an important role in the real estate industry. So based on what we saw last week, they're also less susceptible to interest rate risk. As you can see, private lending can't really be painted accurately with a broad brush. There are all sorts of private lenders out there. Some do bridge loans, some do renovation loans, some do home equity loans, some do consolidation loans, some work with borrowers who can't qualify for bank financing, some target people who are desperate for money. I don't think it'd be useful to do a podcast on every type of loan out there, but I want to make the point that people and businesses often borrow money to help them expand, not because they're in dire straits. Debt is a tool that can be used to create wealth. In Sarah's case, it got her out of a bind and helped her make almost $1.5 million. Jason used different loans at different stages of his development. The cool thing is that lenders of all sizes can participate in this market. There are a lot of entrepreneurs and real estate investors who are looking for $20,000 or $30,000 or $40,000. I'll talk more about that another time. So that wraps it up for this week's episode. There are still a couple of topics that I want to cover, but we're getting close to finishing our segment on direct mortgage lending. Our next episode will be about why entrepreneurs might borrow money instead of raising equity. For example, to finance his deal, Jason used $5 million from investors and got the remaining $10 million in loans. Surely a developer of his scale could have raised enough money to fund the whole thing in cash. So why did he purposely borrow money? Thanks, as always, for spending your time with me. Please remember to visit my website, alexisasadi.net, and you can get my free ebook there called The Foundations of Investing. I'll talk to you soon, and have a good week.